Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar. The ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder. By being What's up, guys? Welcome back. Back to the basement. Center of Attention, episode 43. Got a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, if you could recognize the intro song, it's Alexander Hamilton from Hamilton. Uh, I talked about this being on Disney Plus a couple weeks ago. And since then, I've probably watched it. I've watched it three times, and I've listened to the soundtrack all the way through like four or five times. So we're going to do some Night at the Theater. I'm going to talk about the UFC fights. Um, some sports that are going on, and then we'll probably wrap this up. We got a pretty cool outro song, especially if you're into Hamilton that Dom and I recorded a couple weeks ago. So there's a lot to get to. First off, let's start by going over following the social medias: uh, Twitter at coapod73, J- at Jimmy Pilato, Instagram at proud underscore wop, and. Uh, Wherever you listen to this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate, review, share it to a friend, uh, somebody you think that would enjoy it because I enjoy doing it. Everybody who's come on says that they've had a lot of fun, and yeah, we can get right into this. Um, I think I'm going to have the soundtrack going while I do this, but I wanted to talk about Hamilton and why... I would highly recommend it because I know there's a lot of people that don't quite understand it. It's a rap musical. It's about Alexander Hamilton, one of the more obscure people who um, founded the country. But let's see. So this basically goes from the song that's playing in the background now. Alexander Hamilton does a a quick summary of the first 20 years of his life and um, then it continually goes it starts about 1776 and goes until his death I believe in 1800 or maybe 1801 not not quite sure the original day that he was murdered in his duel with Aaron Burr but go over the cast first because the cast I think deserves a lot of credit for doing to this play what it what they have because this play debuted I think in 2005-ish and it's been sold out not 2005, 2015-ish it's been sold out every single night that it's played since it's original air date um, they're going to make a movie about it I think I mean I think that they're making a movie about the making of the play I think they're going to adapt the play to a movie um Honestly, it's one of the most impressive things that I can remember ever witnessing. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, if you know the backstory behind it, he had just finished In the Heights, finished that run on Broadway, his original musical that he wrote and did the lyrics for. And he was out uh, in the Caribbean, I think, for his honeymoon and was reading the Hamilton Hamilton biography, and it inspired him. He thought that Hamilton's life was... Basically, like a rap beef, um, he he had caused all of his strife and all of his success just from the words that he wrote down. So he thought that he his life embodied the hip hop lifestyle. So he decided to write just a poem and then was going to do a concept album about Alexander Hamilton that morphed into an entire Broadway production musical. He wrote chorus lines into rap songs. He took all different kinds of genres. So we'll start there with the cast. Lynn Manuel Miranda, writer, composer, lyricist, and was the original Alexander Hamilton. Since this play has come out, he's also written songs. Uh, he did most of the soundtrack for Moana, so you're welcome. He worked with The Rock directly when he was singing that song. Talked a lot about what he brought to the play. Um, Hamilton, throughout the play, one of the interesting things about him is that he's always a little bit better at rapping because he was probably the most skilled writer of the time period. So he's he's more of a lyricist if you wanted to give him like a modern day um, modern day comparison, probably be an Eminem just because of where he came from and the way that he can put syllables together and 
doesn't really wait around for anything that he wants, always goes out and takes what he wants. Next we have Leslie Odom Jr., who is the original Aaron Burr. Uh, can't really say enough about this guy. He's the main antagonist of the entire show. Uh, it's announced in the first um, first song that he's appearing in, in Alexander Hamilton. He says at the very end, he's the damn fool that shot him. So you know exactly where the play is going to go. I mean, it's a historical play, so everybody kind of knows where the play is going to go. But uh, he does a very good job, Leslie Odom Jr., of giving Burr... You know, he, we know that he's a savant. We know that he's very popular. He just seems to be a little bit behind Hamilton everywhere that he goes because he waits for his opportunity instead of going and taking his opportunity. And then throughout the play, as Hamilton becomes more successful and kind of slights Burr a little bit more, you start to understand and sympathize with the reason why he did go kind of crazy and challenge Hamilton to the duel and end, end up killing and shooting, shooting and killing him. Um, but he's one of the best singers. He can rap. He brings mo more emotion. And I think he has the two most powerful songs in the entire play. Wait For It, which is kind of an anthem to Burr's mindset, kind of. And I think that that's a... I don't think that there's a better way to explain why he's as cautious and why he does the things that he does. Plus, you also have... Uh, the Room Where It Happened, which The Room Where It Happened can have a segment unto itself. It's such a, it's a song that incorporates jazz, big band, original Broadway, rap, pop, a little bit of funk, uh, and it's the turning point of the play. It's not the climax necessarily, but it's the turning point of the play where Burr starts to switch and become a little bit more like Hamilton, and Hamilton switches and becomes a little bit more like Burr. Uh, Burr starts being a little bit more ambitious. Hamilton holds his, his emotions in a little bit so that he can come up with a compromise with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. So that's the original Aaron Burr, Leslie Odom Jr. Next, David Diggs. He plays Marquis de Lafayette, the French uh, soldier who helped fight in the American Revolution. And I'm not sure how historically accurate it is that he was kind of the turning point in the... Um, in the Revolutionary War, if he was just a really good soldier and then goes back to France, but then after the revolution ends in Act One, he then comes back and plays Thomas Jefferson. So a lot of these a lot of these actors play two parts. I think except for the Schuyler, Angelica Schuyler, Eliza Schuyler, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, and Leslie Odom Jr. I think everybody else plays two roles. Um, but yeah, for for. Diggs' characters, Marquis de Lafayette, in the when we first get introduced to him back in Aaron Burr, sir, when him, John Lawrence, and Hercules Mulligan are all going around and freestyling, we're introduced to him, and they, they're not quite as good a rappers. They're getting better. The way that the I've heard it described, it's like a late 80s style, more Run DMC-ish. Um, and then by the time the revolution almost comes over in the song Yorktown, Battle of Yorktown, he he rap, he actually holds the record for fastest Broadway rap, and at his fastest in that song, he is rapping six words per minute. Um, he has the interesting dichotomy. He plays a guy who knows how to rap and then progressively gets better in the first half of the play, and then in the second half of the play, he plays Thomas Jefferson, who during the events of the first act was off in France as a French ambassador for the United States. And when he comes back, he, he's missed all of the rap that has been going on. So he's still stuck kind of like in the 70s, 60s, 70s. And that's his first song, What Did I Miss? He's going around singing, jumping around, dancing, while everybody else is rapping, trying to get to the point. And um, Jefferson's original song kind of wraps around everything that's going on, but he doesn't actually say what's going on. And that's a, it's an interesting little tidbit that Miranda put in there. Since Jefferson hasn't been here, he, he demonstrates that by not having the same music style. Moving on now to Renee Ellis Gold, Goldsberry. She plays Angelica Schuyler, the oldest of the three Schuyler sisters. Um, very empowering character for a woman to play, especially in a play about 
the 17, late 1700s, early 1800s, where they didn't have a ton of freedom, I guess. She, uh, she kind of, she plays a little bit of uh, the lover scorned, almost. It's unrequited love between her and Hamilton. Um, she explains in her song, Rewind, that she has to marry rich because her father doesn't have a son. And since Hamilton is originally poor and of the working class in the first part of the play, she can't go be with him no matter how bad she wants to. So she introduces him to his eventual wife, Eliza Schuyler, her sister. But she has some of the most empowering lines, I think, in the play. And she is a great performer. And just the power that she brings in a lot of her songs is amazing. Next, we have Eliza Schuyler, played by Philippa Sue. I think that maybe she wasn't in um, his original Broadway play. She did do some vocals for Moana. Um, but as Eliza, she does a good job of initially showing how in love her and Hamilton are and their they don't have any problems, she's optimistic about everything, and then as the play progresses and the events of their life, Hamilton has a pretty tragic life. I mean, he comes to America after having his wife, his mom die, his dad leave, his cousin commit suicide, and a hurricane take out his original hometown. Ends up getting the ability to come to America, joins the revolution, uh, becomes, secretary, becomes a lawyer, becomes secretary of the treasury, and then all of a sudden is denounced by his party. Then his son is killed in a duel. Cheats on his wife, so she doesn't like him for a while. There's a lot of tragedy that happens in their lives, but I would say the best thing about Philippa Sue is that she shows the initial bubbliness of the entire situation and then shows the tragedy of everything at the end very, very well. Stage actors, I didn't have enough appreciation, I don't think, for stage actors, but especially with the stage choreography and everything that they're doing in this play and the facial expressions, you tell everything that's going on in this play just by looking at it without having the sound on. Um, and then putting the music to it makes it even a little bit more powerful, I think. Next, Jasmine Cephas Jones. She played Peggy Schuyler. And Mariah Reynolds. Mariah Reynolds is the woman who Hamilton had his affair with and then published the Reynolds pamphlet about it. As a Schuyler sister, she's not really anything, but as Mariah Reynolds, she is able to tempt Hamilton into doing something that ruins his marriage and his political career and makes it so that he'll never be president. Um... Like most of the other characters playing two people, she does a good job of switching between the two because I didn't realize that she was Mariah Reynolds until probably 10 minutes into the time where Mariah Reynolds showed up on screen. And her song, uh, Say No to This, I don't know if we'll get to it. It's playing in the background. Honestly, I don't know if you can hear the music that's playing in the background, but I do have the soundtrack going. Um, Say No to This is it's funky. Um, and it is kind of a guilty pleasure to where you want him to say no, but damn, that hook is catchy. And that song, even, uh, that song is so good. Actually, not that song. It's Helpless, the Eliza Schuyler song that she sings when she first sees Hamilton. Actually got covered by Ja Rule and Ashanti. So this is, it's a historical play, and it's a Broadway play. But it does transcend pop culture a little bit uh, with the amount of different people that enjoy it next probably my favorite character in the entire play Jonathan Groff plays King George um, he's just really funny and he does play King George well he does the initial please take your seats turn off your cell phones at the beginning of the production and he at the end he calls it my play so he's already in character by that time if you know anything about the historical King George He's narcissistic, doesn't understand what's going on in the rest of the world, thinks that he's going to get his way no matter what, and eventually he does go crazy, he goes a little bit insane towards the end of his life, but um, it's Miranda's said that it doesn't really make sense for King George to be in the play, 
because he didn't really have anything to do with the revolution other than sending his troops across to the Americas. Um, but it is a good way. He uses King George as a way to kind of show that... Um, he uses King George as a way to show that England is so out of touch with America. The English key, the English characters singing pop, like British Invasion pop, so kind of the Beatles. And then King George has a breakup song, which is the song that you'll hear from Dom and I at the end of this episode. You'll be back where he's basically... It sounds like a breakup song, except then he brings in the military aspect of it. Towards the end, he has... What comes next after the Americans win the revolution? Asking um, what's going to happen now. And then I know him. He talks about Washington stepping down and yielding his power. And he has a great line. I, I wasn't aware that was something a person could do. Um, he's played very well, I think, by Jonathan Groff to where he's kind of clueless about everything else that's going on. Second half, he, he sits in on Act 2 and listens to some of the rap, and he's never heard it before, so he looks like a grandpa who's never heard it, but it... It's infectious and it's getting him to move. Um, so yeah, that's that's Jonathan Groff who plays King George. Next we have Chris Jackson, who's the original George Washington. I think best voice in the entire play. Uh, Miranda uses another musical style to kind of show the prestige and the age of Washington compared to the rest of the people in the play. Washington kind of, I would say he's more iced tea, but he sings a lot more in his songs than he does rap. He doesn't really go off lyrically or anything like that. He is more succinct to the point. He's not doing anything fancy. His, I think his best song is One Last Time, but he also has Right Hand Man, which is really good. And... Um, he commands a lot of presence on stage as George Washington. It's interesting with Chris Jackson, too. He is African-American. Most of the people in this play are not the same race as the people who they are portraying. And when he was asked about it, Chris Jackson playing George Washington, who was known to have slaves and lived in the South, and I don't know if he was pro-slavery, but he had them. Um, he says that it's an interesting way to take control of history because he never thought that history was about him since he never heard anything about african-american or darker complected forefathers of the country but he also uses it to acknowledge the fact that washington had slaves and was complicit in the slave trade um, at the end when eliza is singing about the washington monument and washington steps up and says she tells my story and she talks about hamilton working in slavery and you would have done so much more he does bow his head as an acknowledgement is yeah, I didn't do anything. I didn't like it, but I didn't do anything to stop it. Um, which I thought was a, kind of a cool insight. Because it, it is interesting having a whole bunch of African Americans play people who were slave owners and liked the slave, slave trade. and um, So I think that was really good for Kurt, Chris Jackson, who played the original Washington. Next, Okiriete Onodwan. He plays Hercules Mulligan and James Madison. Um, I wasn't too familiar with Hercules Mulligan when, before I watched the play. Um, he's a little bit more of a powerhouse, I'd say, of the four main protagonists, Lorenz, Lafayette, Hamilton, and then Mulligan, I would say, is kind of the outlier. He's the muscle. He's a tailor's apprentice, and he actually goes in and spies on the British government through his job while he's taking their measurements and making their, their pants takes their information and gives it back to his friends. Um, when he plays Madison, it's a different kind. It, Mulligan is out there. He's a ruffian. Um, and then Madison is a lot more reserved and doing a lot more for the Union. So it, it's an interesting switch in character for him. Honestly, he's, he's one of my... One of the characters that I could do without Madison is kind of important. He did write the Bill of Rights, and he did write a few of the Federalist essays. Um, but I wouldn't say that he's necessarily essential to the play. He does have a couple good moments. Uh, his initial freestyle is all about sex, which wasn't what they were rapping about at first, but it's something you can do, I guess. Next, we have... 
next final main character of the original cast, Anthony Ramos, who played John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton. He looks a lot like Lin-Manuel Miranda, which I think is why they cast him in this play, in the characters that he's playing, because he does play Philip Hamilton, Alexander's son. He's he's one of those guys that commands a presence on stage, sings really well, can rap. Uh, Lawrence was one of my favorite characters before he ends up getting killed, and then uh, as Philip, he, he has one of the most heart-wrenching parts of the entire play, when uh, he's killed, shot in his duel, and his parents are there trying to will him to stay alive, and isn't able to. <clears throat> but the, that's the original cast. I think the play... The reason why everybody loves it so much and the reason why it makes as big of a splash in pop culture as it does is because it, even though it's about the American Revolution in the 1700s, which we all assume are so far off in the past, which they are, but in relative terms to the other countries, it's not that far in the past. It has a lot of themes that play in the modern day, like the race relations that I was talking about um, it's kind of a cautionary tale. You kind of have to find your balance between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, where you got to go out and get what you want, but you also have to be patient, and you you got to make sure that you don't piss anybody off. You don't have to make sure that you don't piss anybody off, but don't piss off the wrong people, or don't let your pride get in the way of your ambition. There's a difference between pride and ambition, and they don't normally work together. I think that's a good... That's the message, one of the main messages that the play is trying to... Um, show on is that there's really not much of a difference between Burr and Hamilton until they get to the point where they sullied their relationship to having a duel on the dueling ground. They could have both benefited from each other. Um, the finally, the final song in the entire show uh, has it's why the world was wide enough. Burr says that the world was wide enough for Hamilton and him. I mean, there's no duels or anything else going on, but <clears throat> I think a lot of people can benefit from realizing that there is more than one right way to see things, and that goes for a ton of different situations. Uh, your way is not the only way that could work, it could work a, a million different ways, and I think that's the main thing about this play. So I would, I would watch it just for the music. I think there's a ton of great songs in it. I don't... The fact that he wrote songs in Moana after he wrote all of these songs is impressive because I thought that he would have used all of his best stuff um, for this for this play. But So yeah, that was Showtime. That was Broadway Talk with the Stallion. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. I did a character study on this in college. Uh, one of the professors that I had was a—he uh, was the original theater director, and was in New York when *In the Heights* was playing. But his class that he was taking there didn't want to go see that, so they ended up not being able to. And then he was talking about Hamilton because that was 2016, so it would—it had just been on Broadway for about a year, and had that huge run of sellouts. Which I think they might still be on, but uh, he he wanted us to look at this and look at all the different ways that Miranda is telling different aspects of the story through basically the same thing. Everybody's rapping, um, but he does do subtle differences that make the each of the make each of the story elements play a little bit better. I think. Check it out, watch it, rewatch it. I think it probably will be the most streamed thing on Disney Plus for a while. I hope they adapt it to a movie, but they're also adapting In the Heights to a movie. It's been pushed back a little bit because of the virus and everything, but I think it's still going to happen. One of the greatest, I, I, I don't throw around the word genius very often, but when you are able to write something like Hamilton the play based off of a biography that you read and a poem that you originally had written down I think that puts you in the category of genius I think that there's probably 
going to be a while before we see somebody with the same talent level as Lin-Manuel Miranda. Transitioning out of that, we'll talk a little bit about college sports and uh, some of the things that have been coming out. surrounding the upcoming season with the coronavirus and let's see when did this one come out so this is an ESPN article coronavirus and college sports NCAA reopening plans latest news program cuts and more Uh, I think this is from yesterday So yesterday, Coach Ogeron of the LSU Tigers, national champion LSU Tigers, said the country needs football uh, during the pandemic. I agree with that. I agree with that for a couple of reasons. I Obviously, I'm a big football fan, but if we have college football, I think it might calm everything down, the tensions of whether or not we should wear the mask or have the stay-at-home order anything like that. Um, I think the one thing that this entire situation has shown us is how much American needs sports. And you could be one of those people who don't think that sports are that important and call me a dumb jock because I all I want is for sports to come back in this time when people are dying. We don't understand what's going on with the virus and all of that kind of stuff. But what I have been saying for the last week or so since the news came out about Stanford cutting nearly half of their programs 11 out of 36 varsity programs are being cut at Stanford University which is a university that has money, has financial backing rich boosters, all of that um, my, my biggest thing is where does that leave the smaller schools where does that leave a western Colorado where does that leave a northern Colorado for that matter to where if they miss a season how many programs are going to get cut sports-wise, but also how many programs are going to get cut in the school? Because if there's not enough, people don't realize how much money, football and basketball mainly, but NCAA sports in general generate for a university. Um, not everybody has what Western has right now with that new building, and they're just gifted a new space. A lot of schools need this kind of thing so that they can continue to go on. And yeah, it seems dumb and it seems inconsequential, but when you don't have those athletes coming to the school, paying their tuition and all of that kind of stuff, you don't have the TV revenue from the games, you don't have the ticket sales from the games, you don't have the jersey sales from the games, there's a lot of things that trickle down and and start to snowball. And this turns into a question of not when sports are going to come back, but if sports are going to come back. If a place like Stanford... Where we haven't even, I mean, we canceled spring sports, which I think their main their main money maker for that would have been, because they're not necessarily a basketball school in March Madness. I'm not sure if they would have been in it or not, but baseball would have made them a decent amount of money with the College World Series and everything going on. All they did was cancel one season of sports, and they already got to cut nearly half of their programs on campus. They're cutting wrestling, uh, they're cutting a few other things, but. There's, uh, it makes you wonder, like, a place like that, missing one season, not even the main season of their school, and and who knows if those teams are going to ever be able to come back, and then you have to get into the Title IX discussion, and, and what sports should be cut, and what sports can't be cut, um, it gets really messy, so I think that's why people need to make sure like, yeah, you might not like sports, but sports need to stay around because it's the lifeline of most of the major universities that you go to. Even the Ivy Leagues. Ivy Leagues have canceled all of their sports for the fall season. I think that's going to really hurt them. I think it's going to really hurt their attendance rate because now tuition is going to skyrocket. You're not going to have that kind of help that a, a athletic scholarship can, can offer. And I don't think that there's as many people who can just decide to go to an Ivy League school as, as people think. A lot of them are 
athletes in lacrosse football. We had a my junior year guy graduated from Cherry Creek who ended up going to Princeton uh, on a lacrosse scholarship. So they have a lot of different sports that they're able to offer aid throughout. And you're going to get all these bright athletes who were banking on that athletic scholarship to go to a, a place like Princeton or a place like Harvard or a place like Yale. I have a couple of buddies who went to Penn and now they're not going to be able to do that. So that's going to hurt their attendance rates. It's going to hurt the revenue for the school in general now, not just sports revenue. I agree with Ed Ogeron. I think that college football needs to happen. I think college basketball needs to happen. And I think that there's ways that this, this can happen. It'd be a sacrifice, but I think it's a sacrifice that would benefit a great amount of people. The sacrifice that this would take would benefit just as many people as it would destroy for um, not having any sports. NCAA eases bowl eligibility rules. College football teams can count two games against qualifying FCS teams toward bowl eligibility during the upcoming season. The NCAA's Division I Council announced Wednesday. Hmm. I didn't even realize that was a thing, actually. So, we talk a lot about, um, like, Alabama scheduling the Citadel and just trying to get a tune-up game before. I, I didn't, wasn't aware of this, but to be bowl eligible, you have to win six games, and apparently they have to be against six games against other Division One opponents, FBS opponents. Um, now they're easing that back to being able to count it against certain FCS schools, which I don't know if it's good or not. I think this is probably a response to people playing just regionally. They're talking about either doing conference only or in-state only or, like, regions. So um, instead of Virginia traveling to – actually, this, this would be a better one. Instead of Maryland traveling to Ohio State – traveling to Ohio to play Ohio State, they would just stay in that southeastern kind of region, probably play a little bit more of an ACC schedule if we do have sports. So that, that's what that means. And now I think this is – so like James Madison University, who's won the FCS title uh, within the last couple of years, would probably be one of those FCS schools that count towards your bowl eligibility. Uh, the Rose Parade is canceled. This is the first time that there's not going to be a, 20, uh, a Rose Parade since World War II. Um Wow, they're canceling stuff that's a ways away. That doesn't happen until January. Um, SEC delays some fall sports. So SEC has postponed the start of volleyball, soccer, and cross country till at least August 31st. Ohio State resumes their training less than a week after pausing voluntary workouts. That's the thing. This whole new there there has I'm not saying that there hasn't been a new spike in cases, but there's just been a spike in cases, and I say that in all caps. Um, there has not been a spike in deaths or anything like that. Cases. Why has there been a spike in cases? Because we're testing more people. Why is there seem to be a ton of cases among the athletes that have gone back to campus to start training? Because they get tested every single day. They are now the demographic that are being tested. That's the thing. Uh, people were worried that the second wave, the median age, came down. And that's not really something that you have to worry about. You have to worry based on a personal level. If you do not think that you're going to be able to handle this... Yes, be worried. But the original wave 
of the virus, we were testing mainly old folks' homes, which is why the median age was so high, like in the 90s or something like that. Now we're testing more people. Median age has dropped down to like around 40. <clears throat> so that's why... That's why I don't necessarily care for all the statistics and the stats. I don't think that we need to worry about the stats. I think that we need to worry about other factors that this can influence more. Because you can make a stat sound as good or as bad as you want to. You can skew it no matter what. You're always leaving out something. Like a, the, the age thing. Why well, well, it was. The median age was 97 and now it's all the way down to 40. Well, yeah, because have you gotten a coronavirus test now? Yeah. Has most of the people going back to your office gotten a coronavirus test now? Yeah. Well, that's because they've taken it from the nursing homes now to the people who want to get tested or have symptoms. So that's why the test is different. It's not because it's becoming more contagious. It's really not as contagious as people think. I say that. Being a person who has to wear a mask every day that I go to work, I say that as a person who is taking some extra precautions to make sure that I don't get it because of uh, the the everything going on. I mean, my family has a lot of a lot of other stuff going on right now. Um, I guess I'll make this announcement now, but there's a special thing coming out on this feed for tomorrow. Um, I haven't necessarily said this openly yet, but my mom, who's been on the podcast before, Stacy, she went to the doctor recently. Six so six years ago, she was originally diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Um, she had gone to the doctor, gotten her thyroid removed, most of it, I think. They have to. Sorry about that. I don't know what's going on upstairs, but. So they took as much of the thyroid as they could, thought they got all the cancerous cells. Um, she went back, I think, last year or earlier this year, and the levels seemed that they were coming back. She went back again. It was confirmed that the levels were coming back, and now having another biopsy and everything, it has been shown that she has to have major surgery in her neck to take out all the lymph nodes on one of, her, one of the sides of her neck. And that she hasn't been cancer-free like we thought, which is disappointing um, because I don't. It's it's difficult to comprehend. Nobody deserves to have cancer in their family. I don't know why all of a sudden it's happening now. And so, saying all of this, she goes on Monday, the twentieth, for her surgery to to get all of this taken care of. Um, we're trying to remain positive and upbeat around the house, but it is sometimes a little bit more difficult to do that than others. So Tom and I decided to give her a present from all of us siblings. And a couple weeks ago when he was here recording songs, we actually recorded a cover of Mom by Garth Brooks. Just because it's one of my favorite songs and makes me think of her every time that I listen to it. Um, it's hard for me to, to deal with some of this because... I, I spend all my time trying to be strong so that I can protect people, but this is something that no matter how strong, how big, or how smart I get, or what I can try and do to, to fix something, this is something that I can't protect her from, and it, it hurts. It's humanizing, it's harrowing, I'm not asking for any money or anything like that. The song is really just a, it's a gift for her and... And all I ask from anybody who's listening, all I ask from anybody in our life is that you send positive thoughts and you don't necessarily have to send a prayer or anything like that because I'm not going to, you know, tell you what you have to do, but just send out positive energy to my mom on Monday so that the surgery goes well. They're able to take out everything that they need to, and then we can figure out how to get this bastard out of her for good. But yeah, that's, that's what's coming out tomorrow. Um, but anyways, I think individual people have to be concerned if you, if you know, so like the reason that I, I say that is because I was just in Greeley yesterday, um, not yesterday, two days ago to see Logan, a girl I've been dating 
recently, and um, I was going up there, so I thought, well, I might as well see Dom since I'm all the way up here, and he and I were in the same place, and it would have been really easy just to go say hi. Uh, with my mom's surgery and everything coming up, I didn't want to risk bringing something back to the house that would delay her surgery or anything like that, so I had to make that difficult decision, but that was a personal risk that I thought of, and that was the reason why I took so much precaution. I don't necessarily think everybody has to take that kind of precaution, um, because it's not as big of a deal as a lot of people are making it out to be. And the fact that people are, are shutting down again, states are re-shutting down, um, I guess we gotta, I think we have to figure out a united front that we want to stop. Do we want to stop cases? Do we want to stop deaths? <clears throat> do we want to make sure that the hospitals don't get overrun? Or do we want to make sure that the state's economies are shut down so that the presidential election is mainly based off the economy and everything else that's going on? I've been very vocal about the fact that I think a lot of the Democratic governors around the country are trying to purposely sabotage their economies and the main and the economy of the country as a whole because it makes it a lot more beneficial for well, they think it makes it a lot more beneficial for their candidate, whoever that, whomever that's going to be at this point. It's going to be Biden. Be a lot more be uh, intriguing of a candidate on that ballot than he would have been without a national crisis or without the economy doing as well as it was. I think that's fucking stupid. I think that there's no merit in that at all. I think that all it's doing is hurting a lot of people in their state, which is fucking stupid because... When you're a politician, you're supposed to be governing the people who live in your state. You're not supposed to be governing for the party that you represent. You're not supposed to be governing for the witch of an aunt that you have. Fucking Newsom and Pelosi. <clears throat> this is something that needs to be taken seriously. But this is not something that needs to destroy the economy of a country who was just at as an all-time high. We don't need to go further back than we already have. There's a lot of everything that's been going on recently that has been really fucked up. And I think that that's part of it. And I, I can't... It makes me sick to my stomach when I realize that all these politicians, all they're doing, they're not caring about anybody's health or safety. All they want is to make sure that their party looks better than... Um, the other one when this is all said and done. That's all I'm going to say about the corona coronavirus. I hope that there's a college football season. I hope that there's a sports season for all fall sports. And I hope that college sports go on as planned because colleges need it. I think the country needs it to take their mind off of things, relax everybody for a little bit. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's talk about some of these fights from UFC 251. Uh, exciting! It was a really exciting card, especially going back all the way to the last um, prelim fight with Vulcan Ozdemir and Yuri Prochaska. Prochaska. Um, I originally thought that Ozdemir was going to win this fight. He's been climbing up the ranks of the light heavyweight division. Came in as the seventh ranked light light heavyweight in the world, and he was fighting a guy who's not even ranked, um, but. You know, shame on me for trying to use MMA math. Ozdemir ended up getting KO'd in the second round by a slick. It was just a great one-two, and it was it was over by uh, Yuri Prochka. Um, I don't think I think he's gonna need to fight a couple more ranked guys before he makes his way up towards a title shot. But at this point, Prochka looked really good. He was uh, it was his first fight in the UFC, so he did look a little bit nervous, and he's got some things to clean up. Um, but his hands are slick, he looks like a good striker, and he looks like a very dangerous striker in a division that is chopped full of dangerous strikers. Like I said, I think he needs a couple more fights, but I could see Prochatska fighting for a championship in, in the near, relatively near future. Now on to the main card. Um, Rev messaged me right after this fight happened, the Amanda Rivas and Paige Van Zant fight and said that he was around too late for the arm for the submission. Rebus dominated the entire fight. She landed thirteen to fifteen strikes, um, got a takedown and then got the arm and was able to arm bar Paige Van Zant in the first round, two minutes twenty one seconds into it. This this was a tough one. I mean it, 
the UFC obviously wanted Paige to win because she's marketable. She does a lot of things outside the octagon. But she's that's it's catch twenty two at that point because you're so famous that you have to fight these big fights. They can't give you cupcakes. It's the same thing that happened with uh, Sage Northcutt. You can't really baby a guy who's more popular than the than the promotion. And the same thing, Paige Van Zandt can't really baby her when she's more popular than anybody else in the division. She's not that that skilled of a fighter. Uh, hate to say it, she's not a world-class fighter. That was her last fight on her UFC contract, so we'll see where she ends up landing. But I don't think she has the talent to be a world champion. I think that she's a great ambassador for the sport, and her husband is a badass over in Bellator, Austin Vanderford, but... She she's not it. She she needs a lot of work to be done. And honestly, I think um, this should have been a wake up call. I, I don't I don't really want to see her back in the octagon just because of all the medical stuff that she's had to go through. But she's she's tough, and for whatever reason, she thinks that she's gonna be a world champion someday. So I'm sure we'll see her back in the octagon. Yeah, we'll definitely be seeing her back on UFC programming at some point. Uh, they they never really want to take the camera off of her. The next fight probably should have been fight of the night. You can you can debate whether the Andrade, Nami Yunus, or Holloway-Volkanovski fight would have been fight of the night. Nami Yunus dominated the first two rounds, and then Andrade came back and made it a dogfight in the third round. She was going for the knockout. She knew that she had to. Uh, Rose Nami Yunus's face looked like Andrade was going for the kill and, and trying to tear her face off. But Pay or Rose learned from the first fight, was able to kind of keep Andrade until the third round away from her, using her striking, her length, she pieced her up a lot, really good. Dominated the first two rounds, but then, like I said, that last round was really close. I thought Rose was going to go out. I have no clue any of those shots Jessica Andrade hit her with. Would have floored probably. They they were fighting that straw weight so. 115, any of those shots would have easily knocked out a 165-pound man. It's just they, these girls were built different. Split decision victory for Rose Nami Yunus. I, I think that puts her right back in a title title contention uh, since Andrade already lost to Wei Li Zhang. So this is probably... Wei Li Zhang has also come out and said that Rose Nami Yunus is her toughest opponent. That would be a huge title fight for that division. Uh, they really need some marquee matchup, and everybody remembers the last fight with Wei Li Zhang and Yan and Yan Jacek. It looks like Yan Jacek is retired or taking some time, so I don't think that we're going to see her fighting for her title shot any anytime soon. So I think this sets up Rose perfectly for a, a title shot down the line. Uh, next fight, Pichor Jan and Jose Aldo. <clears throat> Very rarely do you see something in the octagon. Uh, these guys signed up for it, so it's it's not like they didn't expect what was coming. But Pichor Jan, with what he did to Aldo, what he was allowed to do to Aldo, I don't know if you lock up Jan or if you lock up the dumbass referee who let that fight go on four minutes longer than it should have, but I can't, it was a good two, two and a half minutes of, the camera was right in Aldo's face, he was turtled up on his forearms and knees, and Jan was just beating the crap out of him, hitting him in the face, hitting him in the head, Un, it was unobstructed for two and a half minutes, it was assault, I think that he would have been put in, in solitary confinement if it happened in prison, I think that he should have have to answer something. That that referee should never be able to ref another fight. Who knows what kind of damage that did to Aldo. He landed 194 significant strikes. 38 of them to the head. It, it was just not... It was what everybody expected with Jan having some difficulty with Aldo in the first couple rounds, but Aldo just doesn't have the gas tank to go those fourth and fifth rounds anymore. Uh, this was a round five stoppage. Probably could have been stopped in the fourth round, but it should have been the first round of the fifth, the first minute of the fifth round. It ended up being a, a 324. But I would, word of caution, if you're going to rewatch that fight, it gets pretty nasty towards the end. Co main event, featherweight title fight. 
Volkanovski retains in a split decision. Um, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this one, mainly because Holloway very clearly won the first three rounds, but then lost the last two as Volkanovski was trying to go for the knockout in, in the championship rounds. There's a big debate on whether or not the last two rounds in a title fight count more than the first three. Uh, I'm not sure where I stand. I, I can see both sides of that argument. And, and since it was a title fight, there's always the you got to take it from the champ. You can't expect to be giving it to you. Um, but it is a professional sport. I mean, everything should count the same as, as everything else. I don't think that there's more merit in a guy winning the fourth and fifth round after getting his ass kicked through the first three. This is one of those rare situations where Volkanovski is 2-0 against Holloway, but I still want to see a rematch. I still think... I want to give Holloway the benefit of the doubt. I think that he did win this last fight, and uh, I want to see what he can do in another rematch. I think that he possibly gets his belt back. Holloway seems to just learn from his last few fights and make the adjustments, or we could see Volkanovski make sure that everyone knows this fight was a fluke and... All the people who thought he lost, you know, screw you, I, I didn't lose, this is what I'm doing, um, kind of thing. So, I guess that's my kind of feeling on that situation. Um, I think now Volkanovski has a lot to prove, and I think Holloway is figuring out that puzzle, and I think that he's probably at the point where now he'd be able to um, turn the tide, possibly get a, a uh, finish instead of having to go to decision. But we'll see what happens. ends up happening with the featherweight division now. Um, don't think that there's a ton of contenders. Let's see. Let's go to the rankings real quick. Brian Ortega, I don't know, he got kind of manhandled in his last fight against Holloway. There's not really a, another featherweight that deserves a title shot right now, so I think you can run that back for the third time and still be perfectly fine for everything else that's been, that's been going on. Get a, a clear-cut winner, and hopefully you got a guy ready for the next title shot after that fight is over. Finally, the main event, kind of a snooze fest. Um, Usman, true champion, knew knew what he had to do to win the fight. Make it ugly, don't pander to the crowd. Um, and, and he knew that Masvidal coming in off six days of camp, whether or not he was getting prepared, quote-unquote, for a fight the entire time. Still, it's tough um, when you're 190 pounds and you have to make 170 in six days. You're just not going to have the kind of gas tank that you're going to need to be able to win a fight like that against a guy like Kamara Usman. Constant pressure, never giving up, always relentless kind of a person. So, um, yeah, so that, that's where that fight kind of kind of lands on that one. Unanimous decision, 49-46, uh, 50-45, 50-45 uh, through all, all five rounds. Masvidal does pose the biggest threat for Usman at 170 pounds, but I think Masvidal would have to have a full camp. Uh, Burns would have been interesting just because he's a really good jiu-jitsu guy. I talked to Rev a little bit about him last week, and he's got a great top game. Difficulty there is how are you going to get the Nigerian nightmare to his back? Uh, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but I don't have a, I don't have a clue as to how that's going to happen. I don't know who takes down Kamaru Usman in the UFC at 170 pounds. Colby Covington couldn't do it, and Covington has a great wrestling background. Uh, Usman is just one of those smart guys that knows exactly what he needs to do, and he's going to do that no matter what. Uh, people are pissed off about the foot stomping and the fact that it was it was a slow fight. He doesn't have to be uh, super exciting. All he has to do is, is, and care about is winning. So uh, that's what he ended up doing. That's... That's the way that the fight ended up finishing. And now, looking at the 170-pound rankings. Um, Leon Edwards could be an interesting fight. They have fought before. And Usman did win. 
but Edwards is a lot better of a fighter now, and he just beat Rafael dos Anjos um, recently, so that that could be a fight. Burns obviously still in contention for a title fight. I'm not sure why he had to drop out of this one, but that could be something. So there's there's a couple guys that I think, but I I do think the UFC is going to try and get Masvidal Usman with Masvidal coming off a full camp at some point. Overall, I think it was a good fight, not necessarily a good fight card, a lot of excitement, but it, it wasn't as good as some of those July cards have been in the past. You know, July is International Fight Fight Week is normally when this happens. Um, it was interesting to be out on Fight Island for them. I thought they were going to fight on the beach, but I think they had to be inside, otherwise everybody would have melted. Um, but good for the UFC getting this out there. Uh, I talked to a couple people last week about whether or not they think this is going to be something that the UFC is able to continue on uh, now that they're not going to be the only sport happening. But I think... The consensus is, is that it's got more people exposed to this, so there probably are some new fans, but the fans that were already there are going to continue to watch UFC, basketball, football, anything that's on, they're going to want to watch. So I agree with that sentiment. And I think that'll bring us to the wrap-up portion of the podcast. Thank you guys for listening once again, episode 43. We're super close to a 1,000 uh, plays throughout so that's that's exciting for me. I thought that it would take at least a year to get that high. Um, take it took about a little bit over half a year instead. But I want to thank you guys. I appreciate all the support. Uh, if you've listened to one episode, if you listen to all, I appreciate all the support. Like I said, look in this feed tomorrow for a special tribute to my mom that Dom and I sang uh, the cover of of Mom by Garth Brooks. And that'll be coming out tomorrow. Um, please follow the social medias at CYPod73 on Inst- on Twitter, at Jimmy Pilato on Twitter, Instagram at Proud underscore WAP. Wherever you listen, like, subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend about it, put us on some random person's Bluetooth, jack their AirPod Bluetooth feed and, and turn us on here. Um, that'll be greatly appreciated. Now, like I promised... With the uh, theater segment going all the way back to the beginning of the episode, Dom and I, when he was here, did sing our favorite song from that show, The King George, his first song in the play, You'll Be Back, his breakup anthem to America. So that will be the outro song for today. Thank you guys so much for listening to Center of Attention. I am the Italian stallion, Jimmy Pilato, and I will see you guys next week. That was kind of Price of my love's not a price that you're willing to pay You cry in your tea which you hurled at the sea When you see me go by Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away Now you're making me mad Remember despite our estrangement I'm your man You'll be back Soon you'll see You'll remember you belong to me You'll be back Time will tell You'll remember how I served you well Oceans rise Empires fall We have seen each other Through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love You say our love is joined and it can't go on Complaining when I am gone. No, don't change the subject. Cause you're my favorite subject. My sweet, submissive subject. My loyal, royal subject. 